Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Minnie McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. Ryan, what headlines have you been following lately? Thanks, Jen. There's there's a lot of news coming out and specifically around allocating funds and budget. And we, we'll talk a little bit about the infrastructure plan, I think. But one of the big budget requests that the Biden administration has prioritized is the idea to continue and increase spending on the opioid epidemic. Again, it's been a real issue that I think has been kind of overshadowed by the pandemic, but it is still a raging epidemic in America. And, and the money for the opioid um, addiction issue in, in the U.S. is meant to research, prevent, and, and create um, recovery services. And specifically, which is interesting, there's a health equity piece around this that is targeting some of this money and investments around populations with unique needs. That includes Native Americans, older Americans, folks that live in rural areas of the United States. And, you know, the why is really important here, right? Um, we know that over the last several decades, you know, at the height of this crisis of opioid addiction, there was something like 100,000 overdose deaths just from 2006 to 2012. And I know that's a while ago, but there's just a lot of really good data coming out from the, from the USDEA. But the why is drug deaths actually spiked during the pandemic and a little bit before the pandemic. Um, and they were up roughly something like 27% uh, compared to the previous year. And something like, there's an estimate, it's always tough. Um, 88,000 people died in that 12 month period due to opioid addiction. So it's very timely. And I think it's really important that there is a reprioritization on that. And, you know, you know, talk about current and relevant news. Just recently, um, a new um, lawsuit has been you know, released around some of the big players, big pharma players, um, and a virtual trial over the allegations that they actually downplayed the risk of opioid addiction to boost the sales of their painkillers um, is going to be underway. I think what's so interesting about the budget, Ryan, is um, I think we all knew that healthcare was going to have you know, almost a center stage in the budget. We are definitely seeing that play out just in the numbers that have been requested in a variety of areas of healthcare. So I think about what's been going on in the opioid, um, the opioid epidemic that we have been experiencing over the last couple of years. And now we have you know, COVID over the course of the last 16 months that we've been dealing with. And I think what we've seen really is almost an underappreciation through the years on how important it is to have a strong public health infrastructure. So this, this, budget request from the Biden administration of 8.7 billion is really meant to strengthen and bolster, right, our public health capacity, both in states and in territories. Um, it's the largest increase that the administration is asking for in nearly two decades, which is just mind blowing when you think about that. Like for 20 years, right, we've just seen very, very little um, investment in public health. And so I think what the Biden administration is really hoping to do is to use the new money that they receive to really help 
train uh, more epidemiologists and public health experts and build what we're calling this, this international capacity to detect or surveil and prepare for responding to emerging, emerging global threats. Because we know that these viruses are happening you know, every couple of years. Um, this one just happened to be, you know, take hold and take shape um, very rapidly. And we've seen the damage that it's done globally. So I think it's been really interesting to see um, just what kind of money the administration is asking for to really start to, I don't want to say rebuild, but really bolster what we're doing in public health. You know, and, and going hand in hand with that, I think the Biden administration has put a lot of, of um, focus also on how we improve our research capabilities. Um, so within this budget ask, you know, he's asking for uh, monies to create a new agency called the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. And it's really meant to be a, an investment, right, to drive what we're thinking of as transformational innovation in health research and to speed application and implementation of health breakthroughs. So I think back to the Cures Act that was passed right in 2018 and the, the moonshot that was set to try to cure cancer by 2020. And here we are, it's 2021 and we're still working on it. But we know that there are really prevalent diseases such as Alzheimer's, cancer, diabetes, that um, are costly to humans and also costly to the system. And the idea around that budget um, ask is really to start to put more of a focus on how we accelerate and, and also bolster our research capabilities. So I think it's just been interesting to see how, how the budget's taking shape and, and so much focus on various areas of healthcare. I completely agree. And I think um, you talk about bolster, the idea of bolstering long-term care and home health care is, is a big part of this as well, Mindy. And, you know, I think something like $400 billion is being planned to spend on eight years on home and community-based services. And we've talked on many podcasts before about, you know, building kind of this foundation of home, health in the home or healthcare in the home. And in order to do that, you have to train, you have to modernize, you have to kind of build the people capability to be able to bring that healthcare home. And it's a, it's a major part of this, of this large infrastructure plan. I was kind of looking at a graph on what areas of kind of, on what industries this infrastructure plan kind of affects. The top two industries are healthcare related. Um, so it's really interesting how this infrastructure plan really does directly connect with healthcare and healthcare equity in the United States. Yeah, and Ryan, I think you bring up such a good point. It's an interesting way to think about infrastructure, right? And it reminds me actually of when President Obama was introducing the Affordable Care Act, right? And he tied it to jobs and to the economy. And so, you know, these things all connect when you really start to think about what the, the domino effect could be. But um, I think home health is one of those, those things that we have are starting to see, right? is part of this modernizing of the healthcare infrastructure and how do we think about like everywhere care becoming a real possibility in in the US right with the ability to build you know the foundation that incorporates things like transportation and broadband and beyond just the the resources and the people skills that that we need to also be investing in 
I think a fast follow to these budget announcements and the uh, you know two point two five trillion dollar American Jobs Plan is the American Families Plan that the White House is currently formulating. You know, plan to be circulated before a special joint session of Congress on April twenty eighth, and it's anticipated that this program is going to be focused on child care, higher ed, anti poverty, and of course, um, health care. And there's an interesting dynamic right now in terms of the conversations happening amongst the leaders of the Democratic Party, right, where, you know, Nancy Pelosi is pushing the White House to make the temporary expansion of the Affordable Care Act that we saw, subsidies that we saw in the $1.9 trillion stimulus um, actually, you know, be uh, an enduring condition going forward, an enduring program going forward versus you know, Senator Bernie Sanders is pushing for lowering the Medicare eligibility to, you know, 55 or 60 and expanding it. Um, so it could cover things like dental, vision and hearing care. So I'll be curious to see, you know, how these dynamics play out and what the, the White House ultimately puts forward in this American Families Plan. And Jen, speaking of um, CMS and Medicare, you know, it's interesting to see some of the activity around the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation and some of the announcements that have come at, out recently that will have an impact to payment models and some of the demonstrations and pilots that are going on. So, you know, earlier in April, um, it was announced that there will be 53 entities that are participating in the first performance year of the direct contracting, which started on April 1st. Uh, CMMI is also making some moves in extending the um, the next generation ACO model, which you know for some for some providers that's worrisome because they they worry about the greater degree of financial risk that is going to be in these ACO models, and they worry that it's going to look and feel different right than the ACO models that are part of the Medicare Shared Savings Program. So, you know, I think it's common to see the activity around um, CMMI as they, they assess programs and pilots and demonstrations every year and, and figure out which ones need to be tweaked, which ones need to be pulled, and which, which new ones get introduced. So, um, you know, I think all that activity is starting to come in bunches at the moment. So it feels like a lot of information overload for the industry as you try to keep track of all of the different movements that CMMI is making. You know, it's interesting. There's been news around direct contracting. And, you know, just a few months ago, we talked about this idea of direct contracting, which was this voluntary five-year alternative payment model aimed at reducing expenditures uh, for the Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries, because most of these programs are really aimed at Medicare um, and the older uh, sect of the population. But just recently, we, we've heard that there's been a little bit of a, a stoppage, if you will, or they stopped taking applications around um, direct contracting. And um, it is really interesting because um, I think organizations really were gearing up for this direct professional direct contracting models that were going to start. And somewhat abruptly, they stopped and, and kind of um, kind of pulled the applications and they're not soliciting any more applications for the global and professional direct contracting models. And just as a footnote here, organizations and providers that had already applied for the model, um, either for this performance year of 2021 or for the implementation period, actually had their deferred start date to 2022, but they're still expected to participate and be tracking. So it's a really interesting concept. I think it's a little bit confusing. 
um, you know, we, we've talked to some healthcare leaders that were ready to go and ready to get kind of their applications in and had spent some resources um, getting things ready uh, because they really are committed to this idea of, of formulating structured ideas to reduce cost and increase quality. And that kind of stops. So we're, we're just going to have to keep on top of this, um, you know, specifically the direct contracting models as uh, things start to kind of get into a groove as CMMI reforms under this new administration um, and see where we go. And I think Ryan related to that direct contracting. I mean, I think it's important to note that that several of the the programs that CMMI has either pulled or delayed might not be canceled, right? They just might be under review so that the administration can look at the structure and figure out if there's any adjustments that they want to make before introducing a second round of a program like that. So um, I think that's just, it's the nature of how CMMI works and, um, it's hard because it could be a full-time job for any individual in an organization to try to pay attention to all the different models that are being rolled out and adjusted on an annual basis. Uh, one of the other ones I thought was interesting related to CMMI is um, late in the previous administrations, um, you know, towards the end of their administration, CMMI rolled out what we called the Part D payment moderniza modernization model. and. It was important because essentially it walked, you know, it, it introduced the idea that Medicare Part D plans could make some pretty significant adjustments to the drugs that they covered. So what CMMI do, has done is they've actually decided to walk back two of the, the major changes in that payment modernization model. The first one is that, you know, when you, you look at um, what CMS has set for payers to cover drugs in what we call six protected classes. And under this modernization model, essentially it was going to allow Part D plans to um, basically treat those protected classes like they would any other class. And so they could pick and choose which drugs are covered versus what has been the, the standard, which is that Part D plans have to cover all of the drugs that are identified in those six protected classes. So that, you know, um, requirement in particular is being walked back by this administration. And then the second piece of it is a change that ensures that Part D plans um, include in their formularies at least one drug per class um, versus the two that had traditionally been the standard that's also being walked back. So I think, you know, it's, it's, there was a little bit of a swirl going on towards the end of the year and the beginning of this year as life sciences companies and their market access groups were trying to figure out what, what these rules actually meant and whether they would go into play and what, what that meant then for contracting and other things. But what we've seen with, with CMMI today in this administration is a quick walk back on those, those, um, rules that were set out so that now, you know, life sciences companies and their market access teams can kind of go back to where they were before the, the model was even introduced. I think another area we've recently seen a flurry of activity is in the EHR space. And unsurprisingly, I think a good bit of this is being driven 
by the um, new federal rules from the ONC going into effect this spring that will actually allow patients to see the notes that um, the physicians are writing in the clinic, you know, with the exception of uh, maybe some behavioral health providers. And I think we're seeing, not surprisingly, uh, some, some movers getting back in the mix. Google's taking another go at their patient health record software nearly a decade from you know their first their first entry into this space uh, they've been recruiting users to weigh in on how they want to interact with their own medical data um, from different health systems in Atlanta Chicago and the San Francisco Bay area and uh, you know trying to keep pace with competitors like Apple who have launched their own records app aggregating EHR data that launched in 2018 and actually went international in October. We've seen Microsoft ramp up its focus on healthcare, AI, and EHR recently with their $19.7 billion acquisition of Nuance, which uses you know conversational voice technology and AI to free up doctors from note-taking and better predict patients' needs and embed within the EHR. And you know, they're bringing almost 10,000 healthcare customers to Google in this acquisition, um, including you know, a few notable names like Johns Hopkins, uh, Mass General, and Cleveland Clinic into the mix. Yeah, I think, you know, we could spend, we, we haven't talked about EMRs and EHRs in a while, Jen, and it's very relevant and topical these days. I think, you know, if, if I were to get a futuristic look a few years ago, I would have said that um, the EMR and EHR industry was going to be continuing, continuing to be dominated by one or two of these big EMRs, you know, Epic and Cerner, I would have said doubled down on that, on that. And, and, and it's still true. I mean, I think you look at um, Epic, for example, and see that their revenues were something like 3.3 billion in 2020 and how difficult it would be for these large health systems to rip and replace Epic because that's kind of the value that Epic provides, or I don't know if that's value, but it definitely is what makes them a stronghold in the industry. Um, that it's really difficult. Once, you, once you're in Epic, it's really hard to get out of Epic. However, we're seeing these new players and entrants in the marketplace, specifically around EMRs and specifically around value-based care, because when you think about this long conversion from fee-for-service to fee-for-value, you know, one of the major complaints and issues with physician engagement and physician burnout is this idea that most EMRs or the EHRs that we just referenced really require extra handling and extra work when it comes to um, working around value-based care. And there's all these bells and whistles and different workflows. So companies like Canvas Medical, which is an EHR startup that was announced um, some pretty good funding and backed by uh, enormous health plan uh, Anthem, really is, is seeking to help create a world where those value-based workflows are not an add-on or not a bell. They're actually part of the experience. So it is more efficient and the, and the visit is more patient-centric and physicians and providers alike who use them have a little bit more of an easier path during the visit. And it'll be, it'll be interesting how this plays out because I think that is an un, um, or that is a needed gap, excuse me, in this industry that the big players have not really figured out as well as we thought they would. As always, Mindy and Ryan, thank you so much for your perspectives. I can't wait to chat about the latest news with you next month. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.